Hello, everyone, and welcome to Hayes Higher Learning. I'm your host, Ashley Hayes, and today's episode is called Balancing the Scales. Today, we're having a conversation on social justice and reform in education and policy. As you all know, Hayes Higher Learning was founded as a space to create accessibility and education to people in marginalized groups. And I'm also supremely passionate about social justice, which is restoring justice where it was lost or taken. And we are now in the middle of a revolution and uprising where people of color are demanding demanding fair treatment and policy and fair budgeting and education. And so I have invited a very, very good friend of mine, Mr. Denver Terrence, and I'm going to read um, Denver's bio and then introduce you all to our special guest for the day. Denver Terrence is the founder and lead architect at Cure Architects, having founded the Full Service Design Studio in 2014 in Prince George's County, Maryland. A native son of New Roads, Louisiana, Denver is a registered architect. Denver served in the United States Navy and the Civil Engineer Corps from 2001 to 2008. Denver Terrence earned a Bachelor from Southern University and a Master of Design Studies in Sustainable Design from Boston Architectural College. Denver is a member of the American Institute of Architects and National Organization of Minority Architects. Denver Terrence is the founder and president of the Denver Smith Foundation, the Denver Smith Foundation was established in 2019 as a 501c3 with the mission to honor the life and legacy of Denver Smith by providing equitable education opportunities and resources to students of vulnerable populations. That sounds like something I could get behind. Mr. Terrence, how are you? Very good. Very good. That was a very good introduction. Thank you so much. I'm excited about being here and um, having this conversation with you. I'm excited to have you here. And um, I think it's dope that we came to the table because I think the work we do at Hayes' Higher Learning um, is very similar to the work you do at the Denver Smith Foundation, where we're both passionate about education. And so my audience um, probably is not familiar with your work, but I want you to talk a little bit about what caused you to found the foundation. So you're an architect, and then you decide you want to do something bigger in the world. And you founded the Denver Smith Foundation a response to your personal experiences with police brutality um, and your foundation offers educational support to people of color. Do you mind talking about what inspired you to start the foundation? Sure, sure. So uh, being named after my uncle Denver Smith, um, it's like I was born into the fight against police brutality and state-sponsored killing of Black people. Okay. So uh, to tell the story, my uncle was a student at Southern University and on November 16, 1972, he was killed by a police officer, a sheriff deputy to be, to be specific. Mm. Um, the entire shooting was captured on color video. Um, I make, make, make mention to say that it's on color video because in 1972, I was not here. And my assumption was that the color, that video, color video technology wasn't available at the time. So mm -hmm. the first time I saw it, I was um, obviously devastated about watching my uncle being shot, but also surprised that it was recorded in color. Mm -hmm. um, and so that that was, um, you know, how I got my name, being named after my uncle. Um, and so with that, there were probably thousands of milestones that happened throughout my life that led me to this point of starting the foundation. Um, 
I too, as mentioned in the introduction, attended Southern University and graduated from the School of Architecture there. Um, and, and while being there, I knew lots of great students who dropped out of school and um, ended their college career only because they did not have enough money. Mm. Um, so that was, you know, one of the things that hurt me a lot going through school, seeing kids, seeing, seeing students not be able to pursue their dream of getting a degree and the only obstacle was funding. Um, and then time goes on and another major moment that led me to this point was, um, the shooting of Philando Castile, mm -hmm. um, and hearing his four-year-old daughter um, after seeing the police shoot her father and watching her mother justifiably devastated, um, this four-year-old girl was composed, um, calm, and consoling her mother in that moment. And to me, I felt, I just felt so much for this girl. Hearing her say that, like, literally changed me. And it mm -hmm. led to the point to where I felt indebted to her. I felt the state, the government was, you know, owed her. Mm -hmm. And understanding that, you know, just from seeing what happened after my uncle was killed, knowing that it was unlikely that the state was going to deliver justice and provide restitution. And so I felt obligated that we have to do what we need to do to help kids like her achieve mm -hmm. their dreams and goals and also students that I had the pleasure of going to school with at Southern University. So that led me to you know, this point of saying, hey, we have to do something. What is it? Can we do? So the foundation was started with the mission of honoring my uncle and his legacy, highlighting social justice and social and restorative justice, and also providing scholarship money to students. And so how is providing scholarship money to students social justice? Talk to me about that. Well, so we know um, that that education have afforded a lot of opportunities um, to Black people. Mm -hmm. And it have changed Black people around the world, specifically um, HBCUs. So, you know, I, I always say HBCUs is, is one of America's greatest institutions. Um, I think with, you know, without HBCUs, there there's no Martin Luther King, there's no Thurgood Marshall, and so many others. Um, you know, a lot of the, the leaders of the African countries um, came here to study and fought their liberation from the colonizers in Africa were HBC, HBCU graduates. So HBCUs have done a lot for Black people and uh, here in America and also um, African people around the world. Mm, and I'll be honest, Denver, like, before I met you, I didn't have anyone close to me who I spoke to at length about the importance of HBCUs. And for those of you all listening who aren't familiar with the acronym, that's a historically Black college or university. And so, Denver, what makes you so passionate about them and the current? And talk to me about the current state of HBCUs, because I don't know much so, about them. Exactly. So so there's um, a, about 100 between 100 105 HBCUs in the United States. Um, these HBCUs started historically because Black people, African people of African descent, was not allowed to attend other schools. So um, the, the, these schools were started 
to give them an opportunity for higher education. Um, they also excelled in sports and, and academics. And so these, these institutions now um, are faced with financial hardships um, and in a lot of cases, unfairly. So for example, the United States government, the federal government funds, provides a lot of funding for schools. However, a small amount of that funding actually gets to HBCUs. And one example of that is John Hopkins University, located in Baltimore, Maryland, receives over $2 billion annually of federal funding. $2 billion, with the B. Uh-huh, yeah. While, while the, exactly, while the 100 plus HBCUs only receive about $350 million annually from the federal government. Wait a second. No, 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 no. You don't just breeze past that because I'm catching up here, right? So you mean to tell me that this one hospital, this one hospital college, uh, medical college, six times as much money as a hundred schools combined. Yes, yes. And, And that's one school. There's Stanford and other schools, predominantly white institutions, that receive significantly more money than the over 100 HBCUs. And, 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 and it's, it's, it's catastrophic for this reason. So these HBCUs who get a very, very small amount of money produce, produce people in, in industry that pay taxes, their tax dollars don't end up at their schools, and hmm. we have a further gap in inequity to the point to where um, I would equate it to slavery. It's the same the same principle of using the talent and the bodies of black people to enrich white people and make their lives easier. So these black professionals graduate, go off to earn money through business and and working for folks. They contribute to society. Their talent is used, but the money that is created from their talent don't find it fairly and equitably into their institution. And that's just on the federal level. On the state level, we have the same problem. Wow. Yeah, we know we have it on the state level um, with the disparities in education and urban schools and overcrowding. But that is an astounding piece of information because what I think makes systems work is lack of data and lack of understanding the data we're given. And so to hear that one school is getting six times as much as a hundred combined, that is just, it's outrageous. It's outrageous. Yeah. It's crazy. And another point too, is that um, HBCUs also provide an opportunity for students who may not be able to get into these other schools for financial regions or others, mm-hmm. but HBCUs is there for these students. For um, example, myself personally, I am not sure there were other schools open and available to me. Mm. And there are lots of people who are in or what was in my shoes that have been able to continue education beyond high school and achieve a college degree only because HBCUs are there and available to them. Mm. Hmm. That is is just so interesting to me because I was raised very much, you know, just pick the school that specializes in 
what you want to do well. And I think the the older I get and the more I learn about the value of HBCUs, the more I wish I'd gone to one. And if I get the chance to go back to school, I'm going to go to one. <laughs> and so... I, I, w- go ahead. I highly recommend it. You highly recommend it. <laughs> I know you highly recommend it. <laughs> and so um, I want to talk a little bit about, because I don't want um, to miss this point, your family is a victim of police brutality. They're secondary victim. They took someone um, who was a part of your family. Now, I want to ask, how did that affect your family from the 70s going forward? But also, have you noticed any progress that's worth noting or substantial in policing and police brutality? That's a, a, a very, a very, very good point. And so, um, as I mentioned, I was not here. I was not born right. yet at the time when my uncle was killed. However, um, I was able to see the impacts of how it impacted my family to the point to where, you know, last year I had a conversation with my aunts and uncles and it's been over 40 years and it is still visible in their face. Mm-hmm. It's still recognizable in their voice, the pain and the hurt that they've gone through, not only from the standpoint of losing their brother in the way that they did, but they also were not welcome. There was not this welcoming arm wrapped around them from the state, mm-hmm. um, from the university. And so, for example, um, there are stories of my grandmother, an attempt to fight this or seek out some, some justice. And she had a hard time finding one lawyer in Louisiana that was willing to take, take this case. case. Wow. And and try to fight for justice for her son that was killed by killed by the police. Mm-hmm. To and and she ultimately was unsuccessful. And um, you know, it's like today, you know, we are like literally today, people are marching throughout the world for justice for Mr. Floyd, George Floyd, um, after being killed, after being choked by a Minneapolis um police officer and the it and i feel as though just from being in the streets marching with the people it seems like something is happening this feels different Mm -hmm. and while i would say while i want to believe that we are making progress uh, that things are going to get better we definitely have a long way to go as a country and rooting out racism and ending state-sponsored killing of black people Mm -hmm. Which is a very eloquent way to put it, because that's exactly what it is. And I think when we frame it as something else, um, as an accident or an isolated incident, we ignore the system that implements. Um, right, right. And, and, and I, I specifically call it state-sponsored terror, uh, uh, killing because, you know, the state, that's a state-owned gun. It's a state-owned mm-hmm. bullet. The person that killed Mr. Floyd is usually it works for the state. So 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 we we are providing the labor, like we're paying for the people that's supposed to be protecting us. We're paying for the bullets and everything that they use as tools to end the life of these black people. And in a lot of cases, to make it to add more insult to the injury is that if possible, there is some type of restitution paid to the family. It comes from the taxpayers. So in, in, in theory or in reality, 
people of the community pay for tools and pay people to kill them. And then they pay again for the mistake yeah. of the person who killed them. Yeah, yeah. Because then when they settle, they're taking it out of our money and not the police operating budget. Exactly. Exactly. And, and I said mistake because usually that's the that's, that's how they, they get yeah. off. Exactly. It's never intentional. It's never, you know, the police is rarely in error. Mm-hmm. And that's that's interesting. Instead of putting that money in education and mental health first responders instead of Exactly. First, exactly. brutal first response. And so you have an initiative. I was checking out the Denver Smith Foundation page. And you've got this initiative about create change, C-R-E, the number eight change. You mind explaining um, why, what that initiative is and its importance? Yes. So, so with, the, with what was happening in Washington, D.C., protests, um, some call it looted and looting and rioting. I call it um, an uprising or rebellion. Mm-hmm. Um, because of the rebellion, businesses thought it would be prudent to put plywood over their storefronts and their glass, um, you know, doors and everything. So um, throughout the city of, of, of D.C., there's these plywood, um, sheets of plywood all over the city. Mm-hmm. And so, and it was this, this, this initiative was a short fuse thing, 40 or 40 about 48 hours from, from right now, um, a group of artists, art collective, mirrorless, um, we pulled these people together to paint uh, images and messages and create some community art on these plywoods. Ooh. And so what we've been able to do is um, use these art, to use these boards to create art and have um, memorials set up for the plenty of people that have been killed by the police to the to the point to where um we've we were doing two a day so yesterday we did day before yesterday we did two we did two today um and they're posted on our our instagram at the denver smith foundation instagram and we've been overwhelmed with requests of hey can you paint our building can you put something here for us in showing that we're in support of the Black Lives Matter movement. Um, so the initiative, the Create Change with the number eight, um, is something that has been um, impactful um, short term in the short term. And I'm expecting that we're going to continue to push this narrative in, in celebrating these uh, the lives of these people, highlighting their lives, and creating something beautiful within the city. Um, honoring them in that way. Got it. So Brianna Taylor has a, a spot. Denver Smith has a, a, a spot. We have obviously uh, Mr. George Ford. Floyd um, has a spot. And so we're going to continue to do this until the boards come down, uh, until we run out of funding or run out of time. I like it. So essentially the art becomes activism. Exactly. Exactly. It it provides an opportunity for artists to support the movement by using. I love it. And so the number eight is significant. Um, Can you tell our listeners why? No question. No question. The number eight is significant because of the it's a, a marker of the number of minutes that the officer 
put his full body weight on the neck of Mr. George Floyd. And so we, you know, create CRE, the number eight change was specifically and for that reason, to highlight the eight plus minutes um, that they murdered a man on camera. Wow. And every time you say it, it doesn't make it any easier to process. Um, it just it doesn't. So here at Hayes' Higher Learning, one of the principles we believe in is that social justice is about tangible solutions and um, tangible ways to solve problems. What does that social justice look like to you from a, a policy standpoint and a social standpoint? And do you think there are any short-term or long-term solution, um, solutions that we should explore? Yes, there, there's plenty. And uh, because systemic racism, because these policies and systems have been in place for so long, they, they're in so entrenched in our society that the solutions are going to take a lot of heavy, heavy lifting and a long time. Um, and there's categories and it's all like, especially during this point in time, there's a bunch of, of nonprofits and social justice movement activists that has these list of things that they want that they want to do. And so mm-hmm. w- one of the things that the Demer Smith Foundation is going to do we are, um, we're, instead of focusing on big things that, are, that people say, like police reform, yes, that sounds good, like defunding the police. And it's, that's the definition of that is still like being worked out as we speak. Um, I think what we're going to ask our supporters to do is do things like contact your congressperson and tell them that you want them to push and support H.R. 40. Specific items like that is what we're going to do and ask folks that support us to do. And H.R. 40, um, for the listeners, it is simply the bill that has been written to study the impacts of slavery, of Jim Crow, of African people starting from 1619 when the first slave ships arrived on the shore Mm -hmm. um, and just to study how to remedy that issue. And so I believe that if we can get something like that pushed and passed, then we could, you know, at the same time, go into a lot of these other things that have been uh, ongoing. Um, So it's things like that 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 we're pushing to do. Um, from a long-term perspective, what I see as what social justice and um, looks like, um, it looks like the America that works for everyone. And we are, we are, and, and, and I believe that that look does not stop at the shores of the United States. So I believe that uh, that we'll get to a point to where, hopefully, to where America, with a lot of work, effort, and time, are living up to the promises, and they've restored Black people and African people of African descent to a hold position. While and after that point, Black people need to be reaching out making alliances, connections with people from the African diaspora, obviously in Africa, 
and also in South America and other parts of the world. And I think that's what a long-term holistic social justice ideal look at look like for me to where these people who've been wrong historically by various countries and colonizers are made whole and all of them are made whole not just me not just african people in america but african people throughout the world Mm, and does that include uh reparations or something similar i believe it has to i believe that the that the financial impacts of um, what has happened to African people around the world has impacted everyone. It's impacted European countries and white people positively, and it has impacted Africa and African people negatively. And so we have to restore that. We have to rectify that in order to move forward as a country and definitely as a, a world society. Mm-hmm. I actually, in my mind, reparations is just reconciling. It's counting the books. It's doing the math and and restoring what you took. Yes, yes, and and, and 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 it's something that is not foreign. I mean, in America, it happens all the time. There's Absolutely. civil suits all the time. There's there's, there's, there's there's groups of people who've gotten um, money directly from uh, from the government um, and. And I and I know that it's not an easy thing. Um, you know, I believe that you know while you know white people uh, for you know in large part love racism, they also love money. And I think trying to um, get them to come to grips with that our country has a debt to pay is something that we're going to have to do. And 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 a perfect example of that is uh, a few years ago. HBCUs in the state of Maryland sued the state of Maryland because mm-hmm. it's clear, it was clear that the state of Maryland did not fund those HBCUs. I think it was four of them equitably in comparison to the predominantly white institutions. And so it went up to higher courts. It was determined that the state owed these HBCUs this amount of money and the state for years drug it out in order not to pay them that money they mm-hmm. from what i understand have recently come to an agreement and are going to give them the money but it's something that is not going to be an easy thing and it's going to take a lot of convincing in time but i think it's necessary in order for us to achieve justice yeah and that's what we believe at higher learning that justice is not the problem wasn't created overnight the injustice didn't happen overnight so it takes arduous work And I think for me, I get frustrated where socially a lot of that work still falls on the shoulders of African-American people to do the research, to prove our case, to say you owe us. We didn't get that much say so um, 300 years ago. We we didn't get that. And so um, that is also, I think, a point to make about social justice. And I also wanted you to touch really quickly um, before we go as an architect, as a black architect, um, I, I could say like one in a million, but what are those numbers like? Because I was really astounded to find how few Black architects there are. Yes, it's, it, it is, it's, we should be embarrassed. Uh, but right now in America, there's less than 2% of the architects happen to be Black. So we have um, communities where Black people live and these communities are not designed by them in large cases because of historical issues. But 
currently because we don't have enough black architects that are that are designing communities that are building buildings that are um, in that arena for black people so while black people make up you know 13 14 50 percent of the american population we only make up two percent of the architecture profession and that's very very low when you compare it to doctors and lawyers and teachers and other professions and i think that that has an impact on black communities for this reason so school so communities um designed by black people have an impact in almost every area so it has an impact in economics so if mm -hmm. there's you know black architects designing for the community then that's an inf uh, flux of money for that business that's working in that community it also provides jobs for construction and and other things and you know business mm -hmm. owners from that it. regard exactly mm -hmm. and so um what makes it important is that there's studies that show that neighborhoods that have certain features and amenities have less crime for example mm -hmm. a tree lined street has less crime than a street without trees mm -hmm. and so, something simple as connecting people to nature impacts their mood impacts their mm -hmm. behavior and could reduce the amount of crime in those neighborhoods but because nobody's designing or caring about those neighborhoods mm -hmm. things like that mm -hmm. don't happen so in in fact what we have similar to our entire system is we as african people are forced to comply and move and live in something that was not designed for them and so in, in fact, in some cases, it was designed it. to hurt them. Yes. So, so instead of the community and these systems designed to benefit, to enhance their life, to make things better for them, we are not doing that. Because in this case, those designers don't exist. Those architects are, are not there. And they don't, they're not there because of institutional racism, because the schools that produce architects are generally hbcus there's hbcus have lost this hbcus that have lost their architecture program purely because of funding um and so that's how not having architects impact the community in various rate various ways not not just crime and also economically and is that how you get um public housing that looks like prison institutions exactly or can exactly. feel like one exactly if the if the if the people designing it don't understand don't have an idea of the people or don't care about the people then it's likely that the building will respond that way and the hmm. people will in turn respond that way so you get housing communities um that don't reflect the people don't look like the people and it's, you know, it's wonder in a lot of cases why they look the way they look, because it's not for them. It wasn't built for them. It wasn't designed for them. It wasn't built with them in mind. And so it's not taken care of. It just doesn't work that way. And we need to do a better job in the architecture profession to make sure that we improve that. Yeah, and I like to 
see it. I'd like to see it. Um, thank you so much, Denver, for sitting with me for this conversation. Um, I think that it has done some good work, and I hope our listeners um, are thinking now about ways you can locally show up and be a part of social justice and think about the ways that racism shows up in so many um, and so many parts of our lives in education and our housing and the uh, cities that are policing. And so, as you know, this season will will center on social justice in various arenas, um, various topics and conversations. And so thank you, um, Mr. Terrence, for coming and talking to us about your lovely foundation. You all make sure you follow the Denver Smith Foundation um, and make sure you follow Cure Architects. Um, and if you're ever in the D.C. area, look out for Denver because um, he's doing some really good work in the world. So, Mr. Terrence, I did not send this in the prep email, but I usually ask our guests, I usually give my listeners a song of the week, um, some music to get them going. I would love to offer you the opportunity to, to tell us your favorite song or the song that you, you have in rotation. That's tough. <laughs> <laughs> because I have a, a very wide variety of musical selections so I yes i'm, I'm from, very clear <laughs> from, from you know hip-hop music to gospel music uh i also listen to a lot of speeches um right now what's big on my rotation believe it or not is um speeches from two different uh two some people would say opposing viewpoints but two of my favorite people and that's Martin Luther King Jr. and Malcolm X. I've been listening to um, both of their speeches over the past uh, few days. So I I don't I, I won't I won't offer a music collection, but I'll definitely um, offer those. So you can't go wrong with with Dr. Martin Luther King or the Honorable Malcolm X. <laughs> okay, all right. Well, you all stream a speech, and I'm laughing because I know that Denver will listen to New Orleans Bounce, and sure. be, <laughs> yeah. that could be an entire episode. Yep. So R- I R- take R- that. Yep, R&B, Jodeci, I, you know, it 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 could be some of anything. You never know. It could be <laughs> but you. Y'all, Denver don't like comment, and I don't, I cannot understand for the life of me why. So I, I would, I wouldn't go that far. I like him as a person and as an activist, and I like his voice. I'm just not a fan of his music. That's all. It's cool. It's not cool. Thank you so much, Mr. Terrence. Um, you all make sure you follow Hazes Higher Learning. Feel free to go onto the Anchor app and leave Denver a message. Um, We have a voicemail feature on the Anchor app. We would love to keep this conversation going. I've told y'all in episode one, I don't want to talk to myself all season. And although I don't mind talking to my homies, they want to hear from you all as well. So let us know how we're doing. Check out some content on the Hazel Higher Learning page and you'll find links to Cure Architects and also the Denver Smiths Foundation. Thank you for tuning into Hazel Higher Learning where together we are learning better, doing better, and being better. Y'all have a wonderful week.